Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Uh, I am going to read uh, the whole chapter, so uh, be forewarned. Um, But if you are uh, able, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock of his, with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, Well, they have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they saw, then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. 
Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father, father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O oh Holy Spirit, You uh, are the author of these words. You are the, the preserver of them. And we pray that now you would, be, uh, you would use them, be the one at work in them and by them in our own hearts. Grow in us a deeper love and trust in God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I trust you have at some point in your life or another asked the question or at least wondered it. Even if you haven't asked it out loud, I hope you've thought it. Um, why do bad things happen to good people? Okay, now we could have all kinds of discussion and debate about, you know, is anyone really good? You know, what is, what is bad when we talk about bad things? But the reality is we've all wondered at some point or another, why do bad things happen to good people? Atheists ask the question as an objection to the existence of God. To them, because bad things happen to good people, God must not be real. A real, good, loving, powerful God wouldn't let bad things happen to good people. So an atheist asks that question to say, well, clearly God doesn't exist. But even Christians, we're not immune to asking that questions ourselves. There's something inside of us that thinks, look, I'm, I'm, I'm following Christ. I'm not committing any of the really bad, heinous sins. Certainly not the ones that like, you know, my neighbors down the street or the guy across town or that dude over there. I mean, I'm not doing any of those things like that. So why would bad things happen to me? We have this sense that because we're good, and yes, put good in quotes, that we should never suffer. We should never endure hardship or difficulty. We know better. We know that's not true. And yet, it's... It's in the back of our minds. It's, it's there. There are times when we grumble and complain to God as if to say, how can you let this happen? I'm good. I'm not one of those horrible bad people. This passage shows us that God uses these difficulties, these struggles, these um, mistreatments, whatever the case may be, to bring about His purposes and His 
plans. This passage gives us comfort and encouragement even in the face of our own struggles and difficulties. Because Joseph, as people go, Joseph is pretty good. In fact, it's, it's a little difficult to find any real, certainly any real heinous sin in Joseph's life. We're going to have 14 chapters of Joseph. I mean, we've got basically Joseph is, except for one or two chapters along the way. Joseph is, is chapter 37 all the way to the end of the book. I mean, he's going to be there. And we're going to have a really hard time finding there's, there's, a, there's a deep sin I can point to in Joseph's life. There's Joseph's besetting sin. Oh, there, there's another place where Joseph has done something wrong. In fact, even in this passage, it's not perfectly clear whether what he's doing is, is sinful or um, just causing trouble. And yet, bad things happen to Joseph. Joseph, one, in fact, if, if, if you were to quiz, if I were to sort of grab you um, before church one Sunday and go, quick, Name a couple of the good people in the Bible besides Jesus. Surely you would start with Daniel, Joseph, and David. Some combination thereof. And even David, we have this horrible, heinous sin. Daniel and Joseph, we struggle. And yet, bad things, things that you and I would call bad things happen to Joseph. He's, he's in this chapter, there's, there's conflict. He's being alienated from his brothers. And at first, it's not at all his fault. It's his father's fault. Notice verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. We've done this twice before, so I'll do it in one sentence this time. Parents... Playing favorites with your kids causes strife for decades. It is, it is a problem that will not go away. It will not, certainly not easily. It will cause trouble for ages to come. Joseph is Israel's favorite. He's Jacob's favorite. He's their father's favorite. And every one of them knows it because Joseph sets his son apart with this big fancy robe. He shows his favoritism for Joseph by making this robe of many colors. Okay, now we say many colors. The King James had many colors. Andrew Lloyd Webber and his uh, amazing Technicolor dream coat. Uh, It really has more to do... It was probably colorful, but it has more to do with the fact that it's long to the ankles and to to the wrists. It's a a full robe. It's not the robe of a shepherd. It's not the robe of working people. Working people have shorter robes. Robes they can tuck into their belt if they have to run all of a sudden. Short sleeves, even sleeveless, so that they can use their arms to work. This is the robe of royalty. Joseph, I mean, Jacob has set Joseph apart by making for him a robe fit for a king. And everyone knows it. All of the children know 
that Joseph is the favorite son. And Jacob's favoritism has exactly the effect you would expect it to have. Because notice what happens in verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more, see, everyone knows, than all his brothers, they hated him and couldn't speak peacefully to him. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That's, that's, they, they hated him so much, they couldn't even have a peaceful word with Joseph. It's an odd thing, isn't it? And we know this. We all have seen this happen. If a parent has a favorite child, if a teacher has a favorite student, all the other children, all the other students, they don't hate the teacher for it. They hate the favored student for it. It's not at this point. What exactly is Joseph doing? At this point, what can you point to in Joseph's life and go, "Well, this is the problem Joseph is causing for his other brothers. He's passive. He's not doing anything." It's purely because he was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, the son of his old age. We're told in verse three that Joseph is the favorite. This is a, a pattern. It's a pattern in this family. Jacob should have known. Jacob knew what it was like to walk into the room or to be in the room when his father was doting on his older brother Esau because Esau, Jacob's brother, was their father's favorite. He, he should have known. He should have remembered. He knew what it felt like to be the, the non-favored son of his father. And yet he carries out the exact same sort of family tradition, the family trait. Joseph is being alienated from his brothers. And initially it's not his fault at all. It has nothing to do with with anything he's doing. Although he doesn't help matters, does he? In verse 2, he's... Assigned to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. He's a boy with the sons of... He's a helper. In other places, that word boy is is translated helper. He's their sort of junior shepherd. He's their assistant. He's been uh, assigned to the sons of the servant wives. uh, Not Leah's sons, but to Bilhah and Zilpah. to, To their sons. And helping them out in the fields. And at some point, verse 2, he brings a bad report of them to their father. Now, the the language isn't perfectly clear. It could be a report about something bad that they've done. Or it could be that the report itself is bad, meaning that it's untrue. That he's made up a story. That he's told Uh, something to their father about them that isn't true. So the report could be bad or the report of the action, the action that they did could be bad, which probably makes the most sense given that this is who these people are. They have a a track record of of malfeasance. They have a a track record of of causing trouble. They have a a track record of, of being immoral. They just a couple of chapters ago, put an entire city to the sword. Every male in Shechem was sliced open by these men. 
So they have a track record of this. It seems reasonable uh, to think that Joseph's more tattletale than liar. That's the issue. He goes and, and tells his father about some bad, wicked thing that they've done. Now, we have no idea what it is. The, the writer doesn't tell us. It makes no sense to even make a guess. It makes no sense whatsoever to try to insert, well, they did this, or probably it was that. We have no idea. And anything we said would be purely conjecture, purely made up by us. And that is always dangerous. But you know how it is. He goes and tells on his brothers, that's not going to fix the relationship. That's not going to solve this problem of um, they hated him and couldn't speak peacefully to him. You don't solve that by going and, and ratting on your brothers. Well, then he makes more bad decisions. Because in verses 5 to 8, he has a dream. They're, they're harvesting grain. They're binding the sheaves. And all of a sudden, his brother's sheaves, his sheaf, sheaf stands up and all of theirs bow down to him. I don't, I don't have a degree in psychiatry or psychology or counseling. I don't think his brothers do either. But it doesn't take that to know what that that dream means. It doesn't take that to, to figure out what Joseph has just dreamed. They immediately know, are you serious, Joseph? Do you really think we will bow down to you? I mean, you're like number 11 of 12. You're way down on uh, the list of authority in this house. We are not going to bow down to you. But notice, notice what happens in verse 5. They already hate him, verse 4. They already can't speak peacefully to him, verse 4. And so in verse 5, he has a dream, he tells them the dream, and they hated him even more. He's added fuel to the fire. Now at this point, you have to ask yourself, has he done anything wrong? Has he done anything sinful? This is what I'm saying. When we talk about bad things happening to good people, at this point, you kind of want to smack him in the head and go, maybe you should keep your mouth shut, Joseph. You know there's animosity between you and your brothers. Do you really want to tell them this dream that you've had? Do you really want to go public with that? But I'm not sure he's sinned yet. There's not a sin. There's not anything wrong that we can point to and say, well, here's where he's disobedient to God. And then, verses 9 and 10, he had another dream. This time, 11 stars plus the sun plus the moon bow down to Joseph. And he tells his brothers and he tells his dad. And his dad rebukes him. Now keep in mind, 
three times, I forgot to point out verse 8, three times we've already been told that Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. Verse 4, they hated him. Couldn't speak peacefully to him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, um, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Three times in the span of just a few verses, we're told they don't like Joseph. And so he decides to tell them the second dream too. Of all the people, of all the people you would expect to listen to this dream, of all the people you would expect to actually take heed to this dream that Joseph has had, his father, Jacob, is the younger brother. Jacob's father was the younger brother. Isaac was the younger son of Ishmael. Jacob was the younger uh, son of Isaac, younger than his brother Esau. It's been the pattern in this family for the younger to be the chosen one, to be the one established by God from the start, to be the one through whom the, the promise of deliverance would be fulfilled. That's true for Jacob himself. He should have at least been aware enough to go, now hold on, fellas. Instead, he rebukes Joseph, verse 10. But it's not a strong rebuke. At least I don't think it is. All we're told is that, that he rebuked him And said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down? I mean, he's, he's rebuking, he's challenging the question. But notice verse 11. His father kept the saying in mind. Does that sound familiar to you? Because that happens somewhere else. Mary. The mother of Jesus is going to be uh, going to hear this report from uh, the shepherds when they come and tell her the angels appeared to us and told us that you were here. And do you remember what it said? She listened. She treasured all these things up in her heart. In other words, you get the sense that Jacob's doing exactly what Mary's going to do in Luke 2. She's going to listen and pay attention and file it away for future reference. Jacob rebukes his son, but it doesn't seem to be a terribly strong rebuke because he files it away in his memory banks. His brothers, however, verse 11, hated him, hated him more, hated him more, and now they're jealous of him. Verse 11. I think we're intended to hear almost a pyramid, an increase in anger and animosity between the brothers and Joseph. Joseph is alienated from his brothers, at first by his father's uh, own doing, but added to by his own choices. Where does Joseph get his dreams? Where do the dreams come from? Because 
God gives him these dreams. And in Joseph, in this account, in Joseph, in these next 14 chapters, we're going to find uh, at least three occasions where, where Joseph is connected to dreams and it's always two. They always come in pairs. There's never just one dream with Joseph. And we're told, actually, Joseph, in interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, tells him in Genesis 41, verse 32, the doubling of the dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. In other words, this actually, these dreams that Joseph has are God's word for God's people. They're God's message to Joseph and to probably, he's probably supposed to tell them. It may very well be that he's supposed to communicate God's word to his brothers and say, hey, look, this is what God is revealing, not just to me, but to you. It's actually the promise of deliverance. Hebrews 1 tells us that God used to speak through dreams and visions and prophets. And now in these last days has spoken by His Son. The doubling of Joseph's dream means that this is how God is going to bring about His revealed will. That this is how God's going to Solve for the deliverance of Israel in years to come. He's making his, his plans and will known to Joseph and to his brothers. But his brothers have had enough. They don't want to hear Joseph. They don't want to hear his message. And they don't want to live the fulfillment of his dream. In fact, we're told in verse 20 when they decide we can kill him and they say what will uh, we'll see what comes of his dreams now. Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers. His brothers are are shepherding pasturing the flocks out at Shechem. And so Joseph goes to Shechem and he doesn't find him there. Instead, he finds a stranger, some some man who says, "What are you looking for?" And you can almost picture Joseph going, "This is this we usually usually shepherd or pastor our flocks here. I wonder where they went. Like it's, you can almost see the puzzled look on his face looking around this pasture going, but this is where we always go. I wonder where they could be. And this stranger says, well, I actually I happen to know their plan. They've, they've gone to Dothan. Not Alabama. That's different Dothan. Um... And so he goes in pursuit of his brothers because his father has sent them sent him to make sure that they're okay. It's not hard to see that robe coming from a distance. He would have been easily recognizable to the brothers. They could see him from afar in plenty of time to actually sort of gather up and say, all right, look, let's make a plan. Let's conspire together. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill this dreamer. We're going to kill him. And when we do, we kill his dream also. If we put him to death, then let's see what happens to his dream now. We'll kill him. We'll say that a fierce animal devoured him. And, and then 
we'll see what happens. So they're, they're, they're conspiring together. They're creating the whole plan. They have plenty of time seeing Him coming from a distance. They have time to, to, to hatch this plan so that they have it ready when He gets there. Reuben, however, stepped in and prevented his brother's death. As the oldest, verse 24, as the oldest Joseph's blood would have been on his hands, he would have been guilty. He would have been held responsible for Joseph's death. He will not have anything to do with it. He says, instead, let's throw him in this pit. And notice there's, we have this this statement from Moses. Moses tells us what was going on in Reuben's head. Reuben planned to restore him to their father. He thought he could save his life. So they threw him into a pit. It's a cistern. It's supposed to hold water, but it's dry. It's empty. And that's when their opportunity presents itself. We can get rid of this brother. We can get rid of his dreams without actually being responsible for his death. Here come some Ishmaelites. Here come some of our second cousins. These are their distant relatives. They share the same great-grandfather. And so this is their second cousins traveling towards Egypt. They've got their goods. They're heading down to Egypt to, to market and to sell their stuff. And the brothers decide, now's our chance. We can get rid of him. We can get rid of his dreams. We can be free of all this trouble. And so they sold him for 20 shekels of silver. They sold him as a a slave to these Midianites, these Ishmaelites, these distant cousins, relatives of theirs. I want you to I want you to know something. There is no pit deep enough. There's no blade sharp enough. There's no threat scary enough. No ruler powerful enough. No condition harsh enough to put an end to God's plan. Those things do not exist. You cannot stop it. That's what the brothers are trying to do. We'll throw him in the pit. We'll sell him into slavery. We'll get rid of him. We'll kill him. I mean, whatever plan they came up with, it was all, in essence, to put an end to God's purposes. If we get rid of Joseph and we get rid of the dream, and if we get rid of the dream, then we end any crazy thought of ever having to bow down to this younger brother of ours. Of course, with Joseph gone, they had to have a story ready. And they had ripped the robe off of him. Um, They uh, killed a goat, dipped his robe in blood, and there were no DNA kits back then. You couldn't send off and have your DNA sample checked. Uh, You couldn't know... Uh, is this really goat blood or is this really Joseph's blood? They didn't have all that back then. Um, to deceive their father. 
It's interesting, isn't it? One who deceived his father through the death of a goat, now being deceived himself by the death of a goat. He had once slaughtered a goat. He and his mom conspired together to kill this goat and use the, the meat for food to deceive his father and the skin for to as fur as, as hair on Jacob's own smooth skin to deceive their father. And now, what goes around comes around, that sort of thing. The death of a goat means now Jacob's deception. And Jacob tears his clothes, weeps, mourns, and he's, he's determined, I will live out the rest of my days. I will still be mourning when I go down to Sheol, when I go to the place of the dead. The other day we went and saw The Incredibles 2. Um, you're always glad when it takes, what, 14 years for, for number two to come out after number one. So Incredibles 2 comes out. 14-year gap, I think it was, between The Incredibles and, and The Incredibles 2. Uh, which means that when you know, your kids were four when The Incredibles came out, so now that they're you know, seven, eight, what, now 15, 17, 19, they're perfectly willing to go sit in a movie theater in public and see the, the second movie because they were the right age when the first one came out. And, and so you know, we all went. And we sat there after the credits, the credits roll. And we sat there. We sat there. We sat there. Because far too often Disney movies have some scene after a bunch of the credits. There's always some giveaway. That's kind of become a thing now where there's this giveaway scene about maybe the next movie or what might happen or some other connected movie. It never came. But we have that in verse 36. Because there's this parenthetical statement at the end of the chapter. This almost throwaway verse. I mean, literally the camera pans from uh, Joseph's brothers selling uh, Joseph into slavery uh, to the death of the goat, the, jack, the coat dipped in blood. The camera now pans back home. And his brothers are there with his dad back home in Hebron. 50, 60 miles away. I mean, this is days later, mind you, that they're finally presenting the coat to Jacob. And then there's this scene added on after the credits in verse 36. You get a quick camera shot into Egypt because these Ishmaelites took Joseph down to Egypt. Oh, he ended up in the house of this guy named Potiphar. You know, he's, he's um, in at one of Pharaoh's officers. He's the captain of the guard. Scene. Cut. That's the end of that scene after the credits. And you're thinking, I won't wait. What? Now, you and I know the rest of the story. You and I know how the rest of it plays out. But imagine you're reading this for the first time and you get to that scene and go, wait, 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 hold on, what? You mean he's now enslaved in the household of this higher up muckety-muck in Pharaoh's, um, in Pharaoh's house? How did he end up there in such a 
place of authority. Joseph's not dead. He hasn't been killed. He's very much alive. And he's two people away from Pharaoh. The king of the most powerful nation in the world at the moment. God in His providence brings about difficult situations to accomplish His purposes in this world. We don't always know what those purposes are. It might be evangelism. It might be reaching the lost. It might be our own sanctification. It might be the growth of the church. It might be, who knows, the the rise of a ruler to power. We don't always know. And sometimes it may take 20 years to find out, which is about how long it's going to take to find out in Joseph's case. But through this whole chapter, there's one person never mentioned in this chapter. God never actually appears here. His name is never mentioned in all of chapter 37. But you know that He is the underlying hand at work orchestrating all that is going on in order to bring about His purposes. We, we write this off, we chalk this up to God's sovereign work of providence. What do we mean by that word? Providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's what's going on in this chapter. It's quite simply God's providence at work bringing about, setting up, slowly working towards the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams, but dreams given to him by God so that they might know this is how God's going to work in His world. Let me fix an assumption that some of you may have. I assume that some of you think that when we say God makes all things right, that God works through difficult circumstances, that what you think is God had no idea this trouble was coming. Life gave me lemons, but God is going to go, huh, you got lemons. Let me make lemonade out of that for you. Like God was not involved on the front end and only reacts on the back end. That's not what this passage is saying at all. Joseph endures these struggles because God is orchestrating them. Because God is bringing them about to put him he wants, maybe even needs, Joseph in Egypt, rubbing elbows with Pharaoh, For a reason. We don't know that reason yet. It's going to be another 20 years. Some of you are thinking it's going to take us 20 years to preach through the rest of Genesis. In Joseph's life, it'll take 20 years to get to the fulfillment of these dreams, to the the working out of what God is orchestrating here in this chapter. Think about it. If the stranger in Shechem hadn't overheard his brother's plans. If the stranger in Shechem hadn't known where his brothers were going. If the stranger hadn't known 
overheard that they were going down to Dothan. If Joseph hadn't learned that information at exactly the right moment, exactly the right time, so that he could get to his brothers before the Ishmaelite travelers passed by. If the Ishmaelite travelers hadn't had, had left just an hour sooner or maybe even an hour later, if Reuben hadn't returned from wherever he was, he seemed to be off somewhere and, and shows up and to make sure that Joseph's life is spared. If Joseph doesn't end up in Potiphar's house, that's the pattern. That's the pattern at work. If all of these specific details that left to what you and I call chance or luck could not possibly happen. They happen because God is at work, because God is orchestrating these things to bring about His plans. Truth is, what the church needs now, what, what Christianity needs right now, is, is a, a heavier, weightier God. A God who is sovereign, who is at work in all things. We need fewer people standing up in public and saying, God doesn't know the future and He certainly can't control it. We need far more this message of Scripture that God is absolutely sovereignly in control of all things. It's true. Sometimes things that you and I would call bad things, sometimes bad things happen to people that you and I would call good people. Now we know there are no good people. We know that all are sinners. We know that you know, we, we understand all that. But it's true that sometimes bad things, what you and I would call bad things, happen to good people. It's not, you should be comforted by this. This actually should be encouraging to you, not discouraging. It's not outside of God's sovereign will. It's very much in it. If pain and struggle and difficulty and heartache and, and relationship issues and, and whatever other kinds of things, if they come to you and God doesn't know it, be scared. Crawl in a corner. Weep. Shake. Who knows what's going to happen? This chapter shows you that God is absolutely sovereign in them. And He's orchestrating His purposes. Our lack of understanding doesn't make Him wrong. Or worse, absent. Non-existent. You know, truth is... We typically use bad things happen to good people as a, a complaint against God. There's one particular reason why we should never use that as a complaint against God. You actually need, you want and you need bad things to happen to good people in this life. Because your salvation is grounded in bad things happening to the only good person that has ever lived. One who was betrayed, nailed to a, by his own people, his own family, nailed to a cross to suffer, and who did bleed and die. It wasn't a fake goat. It was, it was the true lamb who suffered and bled and died in our place. 
wrongfully. Not for sin He committed. Not for anything He did wrong. But for ours. We want. We need. We need it to be possible. We need bad things to happen to good people. Because if that doesn't happen, we're still in our sin. And most to be pitied. Your only hope and comfort in this life and in death to steal part of a phrase from the Heidelberg Catechism is that bad things have happened to one particular good person. Your hope, your trust in Christ and in Him alone frees you from the penalty and ultimately the very presence of sin. In the meantime, may God grant to us the grace to live recognizing that He is at work even in those bad things that we think are so terrible and horrible and bad to bring about His purposes among in and among His people in His time, in His creation, for His reason. Let's pray together.